Hello, you're listening to the Dwell on Truth show. I'm Brenton Powers. If you're listening on KSCO, it is 8 a.m. Time to get up and get ready for church. And I hope you are blessed as you listen to the Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans. My name is Brenton Powers, and you're listening to Verse by Verse. Tonight, we're going to continue our study, beginning in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. So let's begin reading Romans chapter 5, verse 19 and following. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul concludes Romans chapter 5, we see Paul's conclusion about the difference between the result of Adam's sin and the result of Christ's righteousness. And we see that Christ is victorious. So going back to what Paul said, the one act of obedience, Christ going to the cross and dying for us, was enough to satisfy the justice of God and the wrath of God against all sinners for all time because of how great Christ is. The price that he paid bounded more than our sin deserved. And so no matter how sinful you have been, Christ's one act of righteousness provides enough grace for us that where our sin abounded, now grace abounds much more. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Through trusting in what Christ did for you, you can be justified and not die for your sin, but have eternal life. Because there's no other way for us to be saved from the punishment that we deserve unless a righteous person gives his life willingly in obedience to the will of God the Father. And that righteous person was God the Son, Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the obedience of Christ. He did lead a perfectly righteous life. So Paul says in this verse, Romans 5.19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So it contrasts being made sinners with being made righteous, which is an interesting verse because it answers a couple questions for us. First of all, why are we this way? Why do we sin? Well, it's because we are sinners. And how did we become sinners? He says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In one sense, it's Adam's fault because he was created without a sinful nature. But when he sinned and brought sin into the world, all of his descendants became sinners. And we were born with a sinful nature. But that doesn't justify you. It only shows you the root of the problem. You sin because you are a sinner. So the solution isn't to try and get sinners not to sin because they sin according to their nature. The solution is to change their nature. And that's what Jesus came to do. So Paul says in this verse, Romans 5.19, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In other words, he makes us righteous by changing our nature. Surely he does call us righteous. Yes, justification means that he declares us legally righteous. And that's how we started Romans chapter 5. That's good news in and of itself. But how he ends Romans chapter 5 is, 
by showing that he doesn't only declare us righteous, notice it doesn't say the many will be called righteous, but he changes us and makes us righteous. Other verses in the Bible also teach this, that we have two natures. In Adam, we have our old corrupt nature, and in Christ, we have a new nature. Though outwardly we're perishing, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And in the next chapter of Romans, chapter 6, Paul will explain more how this transformation takes place. For example, in verse 6, he'll say, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus can make us what he wants us to be. He said to the disciples, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And on to the next verse, verse 20, we'll see this contrast between law and grace, between what we have earned by our works versus God's unmerited favor, versus the favor that God gives apart from us deserving it. That's called grace. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is another great verse that shows us the purpose of the law. Why did God give the Ten Commandments? It says here, to increase the trespass. What? Does that mean that God wanted us to sin more, so he gave us the law telling us not to sin? No, we were already were sinful by nature, and we sin. The law's purpose is that we may recognize how much sin we have, how exceedingly great our sin is. As Paul says later in Romans 7, verse 12 through 13, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Other translations put it exceedingly sinful, or utterly sinful, or sin became more sinful than ever. That's what God's law does. It shows us that we're more sinful than we ever thought. When we compare ourselves to God's standard, the way that he sees things, and what he says is the difference between right and wrong, we realize, wow, our sin is a lot greater in number. It has increased after we read the law. The same law that is also written on our hearts and our conscience bear witness. It says, you shall not steal. And yet our conscience says, you've stolen, haven't you? I know I've stolen. What does that make me? A thief. So what does that make you? A thief. How many times have you told a lie? God said, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. Oh, too many lies to count. Oh, no. The law is just like a mirror. It shows us how dirty we are. It says, you shall not kill. But Jesus amplified the law and said, you've heard it's written, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you even call your brother an idiot or a moron, and First John says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer in your heart, and you'll be liable to the judgment. And also the command about not committing adultery. Did you know you're also guilty if you just look at a man or woman with that desire? Or if you're not married and you have sex outside of the marriage covenant? How many guilty, sinful thoughts have you had in your life? Wow. So yes, the law increases the amount of trespasses and the amount that we are in trouble. We are in deep, deep trouble, aren't we? if God judged us by the law. However, that is where the good news 
becomes good news indeed. As Paul continues to say in Romans 5.20, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, God's grace is more than enough for our need. Though the, though the law requires that the soul that sins shall die, the death of Christ is more than enough to satisfy that law because he substituted himself for us. That's grace. What you need to see is that God's grace abounds more than you've ever seen before. The only way to see that is to see that your sin abounds more than you ever thought before seeing the law. So notice how we're contrasting the law and grace, but both are from God. God uses the law to show us how amazing his grace is. Like that song we sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And here we realize we once were dead, but now we live because of grace. That is, if you receive the abundance of grace offered through Jesus Christ. And what does it lead to? Not just forgiveness of sins, not just declaring us righteous, but making us righteous and qualifying us for eternal life. No more condemnation. Oh, that's great news for some of you out there. Believe through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and you can know that you have eternal life. Acts 15.11 But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's what Peter said, that both Jews and Gentiles will be saved through grace, not by works of obedience to the law, but by Christ's one act of righteousness and obedience to the Father. So where is abundant grace found? In Christ. John 1, 14-17 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So notice, abundant grace is found in Christ. Grace upon grace. You know there's different kinds of grace. There's some grace and then there's more grace. There's grace for saving you and there's grace for sanctifying you. There's grace for calling you holy and grace for making you holy. And as we become Christians, by God's grace, we're saved. And then after that, we are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 So God's grace is sufficient for our entire lives, from beginning to end on this earth, and beyond that for eternal life. As Paul said in Galatians 1.15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And he begins to tell his story from that point. God gave him grace even before he was born, when he was a baby in the womb. Second Corinthians 12.9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And sure enough, God's grace did give Paul strength, as he says later in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. Does that sound like enough grace for you? Yes, more than enough. So stand firm in the true grace of God, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5.12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And you know, God's grace is not a license to sin, but it teaches us to say no to sin. That's what Paul said to Titus in Titus 2.11-14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the last verse about grace that I want to give you tonight, because of time, because our time is short, Ephesians 1, 6, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, that is, in Christ. We are blessed with glorious grace, and it results in praise being given to him. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, so much for the grace, the abundant grace, the glorious grace, the saving grace, the sanctifying grace, the growing grace, the sufficient grace that you give us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that just as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through you. So that's the end of Romans chapter 5. And next week we'll begin Romans chapter 6, which answers the obvious question, if grace abounds where sin abounds, does that mean that we can continue to sin? But we'll explain it more in detail as we continue to study through the letter of Paul to the Romans. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, to nothing, <clears throat> to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but pursue yourselves but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. It's always good to study the Bible in context, in light of the author's purpose for the book. In Romans, Paul is preaching the gospel. So remember, the book of Romans is all about the gospel. The gospel of grace. The key verse is Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So as we look at the overall context of the book, that's the thesis for the whole book. Before we begin chapter 6, it helps to understand what came before. So here's a brief outline of what we've looked at so far. Chapters 1 through 3 is about everyone's need for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles, both religious and non-religious, yes, everyone needs to be saved. And the only way that we could be saved from the wrath of God is by the power of God and the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel. Then, from Romans chapter 3 through 5, we learned the theological basis for justification by faith, how God counts our faith as righteousness, and he declares us not only forgiven, but righteous, because of what Jesus Christ did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Because he lived a sinless life, he can offer us his righteousness, and he offers to take our sins away because he's already paid the punishment for them. So the way we have access into this grace, into this gift of righteousness, access is given by faith, not by works. So that if you trust in Jesus, you will be counted as righteous. But if God judged you by your works, then you would be condemned because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But everyone who believes is justified as a gift of God. So salvation is by grace. But as we move into chapter 6 of the book of Romans, Paul begins to answer the question, well, if I'm saved by grace and not by works, does that mean I can continue to sin and then God's grace will abound? Does it matter how much I sin if all my sins are forgiven anyway? It's a logical question to ask if you truly understand what grace is, how great his forgiveness is. However, In Romans chapter 6, Paul begins to teach that we're not only saved by grace from the punishment that we deserve for sin, but we are also sanctified by grace, that is, set apart from sin. In other words, God's grace not only makes us holy in God's eyes, that's justification, but God's grace makes us holy practically in our real lives. So Paul builds upon the theological foundation he laid in Romans chapter 1 through 5. And what we're going to see in Romans chapter 6 through 8 is the practical application. How do we live by faith? How do we live under grace? How can we overcome sin in our daily lives? Now that we've entered into a relationship with God, how are we to continue living with him? You see, God is not only concerned about where you'll spend eternity, He's also concerned about how you spend your life here on earth. And his power to save you is so great, it not only makes sinners acceptable in heaven, but it changes sinners into saints on earth. So if you have really put your faith in Christ, 
for salvation. You should begin to experience His sanctification, not only saving you from the punishment of sin, but also saving you from the practice of sin and from the power of sin. As he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So if you have been born again through faith in Christ, you've become a new creature. God's given you a new heart, and you have the right to be called a child of God. You may be a new believer, or you may be an older believer. But if you're truly a Christian, you will want to be set free from your sin. You will no longer want to sin like you, like you used to. But how? How do we live a righteous life? How do we live this new Christian life? Well, it starts by understanding the gospel and then applying it to your daily life. So let's see how that works. In Romans chapter 6, as we continue our study, verse by verse. So let's read Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. So in verse 1, we see two questions. First, what shall we say then? Then, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? The first question, what shall we say then, is a response to what Paul said in the end of chapter 5. If the gospel is true, then what? If we're truly saved by grace, if God's grace abounds where our sin abounded, then the next logical question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace is a good thing, but we naturally have this objection. It doesn't sound right that God would just give us grace so that we would keep sinning. Yes, we understand through the gospel of grace that we are set free from the condemnation that our sins deserved. That's grace. But does that mean that we should continue to sin, that it doesn't matter? And his answer, briefly, is no. By no means. No way. We are not to continue to sin so that grace abounds. That's not what God wants. We're not to see grace as a we're not to see sin as a cause for grace or as an as a way to access God's grace because he began Romans chapter 5 the last chapter by saying therefore we've been justified by faith we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ verse 2 through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice so it's not sin that gives us access into grace it's faith that gives us access into grace. Paul's point at the end of chapter 5 was, in verse 20, that the law came in to increase the trespass, that is to show us how much more we've sinned against God than we realized. And where sin increased, he goes on to say, grace abounded all the more. So, as much as the law reveals your sin, even more, God's grace takes away your sin. But what is grace? We use that word, but it's a Christian word. It's a Bible word. It's an important word. It means something. God's grace is God's favor toward us. God's undeserved favor, where we can receive as a gift good things that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned, but that he freely gives us as a gift. Basically, anything good we have in our lives is a gift of God's grace. God favors us who believe. He doesn't show favoritism like man does, but by faith we have access into this grace in which we stand. We have a right relationship with God. He not only loves us, but he likes us. He accepts us by grace. He approves of us by grace. He saves us by grace. And he sanctifies us by grace. And he'll glorify us by grace. We don't deserve any of it. And that's why it's called grace. 
God's undeserved favor. Now, the point Paul is making between Romans chapter 5 and 6 is that God's grace abounds. God gives us more than we deserve. Because of our sin, we deserved to go to hell. But because of God's grace, we get to go to heaven. By our works, we've earned death. But by grace, we get life. On our own, we're separated from God. But with Christ, we receive grace that brings us back to God. In our human, sinful nature, we sin. But by God's grace, we can overcome sin. God's grace, if rightly understood and received, will not be an excuse for doing evil. Jude, in his little letter at the end of the Bible, he says there's a false teaching of grace out there. It really, it twists grace into something else. And maybe you've seen this. or Maybe you've heard people using God's grace as a license to sin. Jude calls the people who teach this false teachers. He says, for certain people have crept in long ago, who have crept into the church, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God's grace has been taken out of context by people who want to live in sin and say, oh, God is gracious. I can keep sinning and he'll just forgive me and everything will be all right. Paul says, no. And also Paul wrote to Titus, something that we all need to understand about grace and how it does more than just forgive us. It says in Titus 2.11 and following, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace gives us two things. First of all, eternal salvation. But secondly, it also gives us God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. In the NIV translation, it says that God's grace teaches us to say no to a sinful sinful lifestyle. God's grace doesn't just teach us that we're saved from sin, but it teaches us how to be saved from sinning. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul will use the gospel truths that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead will show us how this directly applies to our walk with Christ. If you identify yourself as a Christian, what you're saying is, I belong to Christ. I'm his. I'm a follower of Christ. <coughs> and I'm being conformed to his image. I'm going to be identified with his life, death, and resurrection. And in a spiritual sense, when Christ died on the cross, it was us dying there. When he rose from the dead, it was us Raising, rising from the dead. In God's eyes, he treated Jesus on the cross as if it were us, seeing it as so important to see ourselves as having died to sin and raised with Christ to live a new life. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? We died to sin? As we continue to study Paul's letter to the Romans, we're going to learn about the practical implications of the gospel in Romans chapter 6. So let's begin by reading Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 7, and then we'll study it verse by verse. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's Romans 6, verse 1 through verse 7. Now let's study it verse by verse. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins and to rise from the dead so that we might be saved and walk in newness of life. Please teach us what that means tonight as we study Paul's letter to the Romans. Help us to understand what you're teaching us through the Apostle Paul in these verses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we studied Romans 6 verse 1, where Paul asked the question that are on people's minds after they hear about the gospel of grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. So his answer to the question is no. But the reason that he gives may surprise you. And here's where the gospel becomes practical. Paul will explain how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus applies to our daily lives. In verse 2 he asked, How can we who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? We died to sin? Paul is speaking to people who are still alive, who have not died physically. So in what sense have we died to sin? So he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Whoa, that's a deep thought. But I wonder how many Christians in churches got baptized without understanding the meaning of baptism. Paul says that being baptized into Christ Jesus is being baptized into his death. And in verse 4, When we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life, to the glory of God the Father. So baptism is a picture of the gospel. The word baptized, coming from the Greek word baptizo, means to immerse, to dip in, as in when you dip a garment into some dye, to change its color. So believers' water baptism is a dramatic acting out of our immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection. It's an outward sign of what we believe. By believing that Jesus died for us, was buried, and rose again to the glory of God the Father, we are saved. And after being saved, we're called to be baptized as a public demonstration that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When he died for us, it was as if our old life was crucified. He took our place in dying for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, paying the punishment that we should have paid. So if you are a believer in Jesus, your old life is dead and buried. But then, when we come up out of the water, it symbolizes being raised again, that we identify with the resurrection of Jesus as well. And when we come up, the old has gone, the new has come, and we walk out of the water. As Jesus walked out of the grave, he in his glorified body 
and we spiritually, being united with Christ, can now live a new life. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose to new life. If we don't have faith in Jesus, then baptism won't change our lives. It's not the water that washes away your sins. It's faith in Jesus' blood that washes away our sins. But we're baptized not to be saved, but because we are saved. And we want to share with the world how our desire is to live a new kind of life. With Christ, we can. And then in verse 4 and 5, we see two things. First, the crucified life. And second, the resurrected life. Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is speaking about the reality of being united with Christ. He really died and rose from the dead. And we really can identify with that. Because spiritually, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2.1 says. But God, being rich in mercy, while we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.4 So by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are great verses that give us the foundation for the truth that we're saved by grace. We're saved from death spiritually and made alive, not by our works, but so that we could do good works. We're new creations in Christ, created as his workmanship for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We should just walk in it. So that's what we're talking about in Romans 6 this new walk, this new life, the resurrected life. Having been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20 says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're talking about a life of faith. It's no longer a life based on our works, but by faith we will produce good works. Because we're united with Christ and he produces it through us. As a good tree bears good fruit, so as we're connected with Christ, united with him and abiding in him, we can and should have victory over our old life, our old way of living. Because we've gone from death to life, from condemned to saved, from lost to found, blind to sight. We've gone from being apart from Christ to being with Christ. And do you not think he has the power to change our lives? If he could save our lives and give us eternal life, then can he not give us a victorious life for the few years we have to live in this body? I may not yet be glorified in my resurrection body, but the glorified Christ dwells in me through his spirit, which is a guarantee for this life and the one to come. Okay, so before I get preaching and going off and expounding too much upon these verses, I want to move a little quicker today and go on to chapter 6, verse 6 of Romans. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul's talking about our old self, that is, who we were before Christ came into our lives. He says, We know this. 
We know this. But I wonder if you know it. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Can you be a believer in Jesus Christ and not know this? Well, I'm afraid that in many churches, they don't know this because they're not taught it. The gospel has been so watered down, reduced to a ticket to heaven, that we don't know some of these foundational truths for our lives. So what should we know? That our old self, which was patterned after Adam's sinful nature, that self was crucified with Christ. We need to just accept what God says, because he cannot lie. He's faithful. And that's the foundation for how we can know anything. Because we believe in a God who has the ability to give us knowledge. We cannot know anything apart from God. If there was no God, we cannot be sure about anything. Try this the next time you talk to an atheist. He may say to you, well, how do you know there is a God? And how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we should turn that around and ask him, how does he know anything? Does he even know for sure that he exists? And watch them backpedal. Well, I'm pretty sure I exist, but I could be just imagining it. But in the Christian worldview, we can know with certainty because our God is able to reveal things to us in such a way that we can know them for sure. And this is one thing that I pray God is revealing to you believers right now. Your old self was crucified with Christ. Amen. Goodbye, old self. And why were we crucified with Christ? It says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That means it doesn't matter whether you were born that way. You don't have to stay that way. In fact, if you're a believer in Christ, you are no longer who you once were. You don't have to say, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Or, I was born gay, so I'm always going to be gay. Or, I have a sinful nature, there's nothing I can do about it. We need to know that our old body, our old self, means nothing. What? You psychologists are asking. We're supposed to esteem ourselves highly, are we not? Well, which self are you talking about? My old self is nothing, but I have a new self. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I once was a slave to sin, but now I'm free. Not only am I saved from the punishment for sin, I'm saved from the power of sin. Hallelujah. But the problem we have today is that many believers, although they are free from the power of sin, just like a prisoner who's sitting in a cell and the the doors have been open, he's now free to leave, but he just sits in that cell, says, oh, I'm just a prisoner. No, he needs to see himself in a new way. He's a free man. We have many people sitting in church saying, oh, I'm just a sinner. And they need to see themselves in a new way. Say, no, I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. The old has gone. The new has come. So maybe you are sitting there listening to this radio show. And you're thinking, I don't know. I feel like I'm a slave to sin. But I believe Jesus died for me. Well, I encourage you. I announce to you. I proclaim to you, believer. You are no longer a slave of sin. You need to reckon it so. You need to consider it so. Claim the freedom that is yours. Say, I'm not who I once was. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he's prepared already for me to do. And I've been risen from the dead with Christ. I have a new life, and I'm ready to walk in this newness of life. So Lord, as I'm joined to you, and you're in me, and I in you, live this new life through me. I will live by faith in you because you loved me and you gave yourself for me. I commit my life to you. 
because you've given it to me. And just as you, Jesus, were raised by the glory of the Father, so that I may walk in newness of life, I trust you. I believe your word, that I've been raised with him, and I will walk in newness of life, starting now. Thank you, Jesus, for dying, being buried, and rising from the dead. Thank you that I'm united with you. Oh, what a wonderful life I now have with you. I praise you, and I glorify you. And I'm so excited to walk in a new way because you're with me. Thank you for the reminder of my baptism. I consider myself to have died, been buried, and have come up with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul will continue expounding upon our relationship to Christ and how we're to walk and be set free from sin in Romans 6, verse 7 and following, as we continue to study God's Word, verse by verse. I'm Brenton Powers. To continue our study through the Bible in the book of Romans, chapter 6, in verse 8. So let's open our Bibles and begin reading. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin, once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you are present, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was Romans chapter 6 verse 8 through 23. So let's continue our study through Romans, verse by verse. Last week, we talked about the crucified life, what it means to have died with Christ, to our old self, to our old ways. Tonight, we'll study these verses that talk about our resurrected self, being raised with Christ. We shall live a new kind of life. We're continuing to apply the gospel that Paul taught in Romans chapter 1 through 5. And we're learning how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus applies to our lives today. So in verse 8 he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
Since he's already established that we have died with Christ, this could be translated, Now since we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So being identified with Christ is the key thing. We're not only crucified with him, but spiritually we're raised with him. When we're born again, we begin to live a new life spiritually. And yes, we look forward to a day when our bodies will one day be resurrected and will be conformed to his image. But for now, we have a great taste of the resurrection power in this life. So Paul is speaking about the resurrected Christian life. We are called to live with Christ. As Paul said in Romans 6, 8, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you believe that? That's what Christians believe. With Christ, there is life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he will live. So as we identify with this resurrection life, it will be freeing to us to understand what the resurrection life is all about. So we're looking at Christ's resurrection and applying it to us. What does Paul say about Christ's resurrection in verse 9? He says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Will he ever die again? No. Paul says he will never die again. He was buried perishable, and he's raised imperishable. So the first point about the resurrection life of Christ is that he was raised in a body that will never die again. Therefore, death no longer has dominion over him. This is freeing. If Christ is not under the dominion of death and we're identified with Christ, then we are no longer under the dominion of death. First, spiritually in our Christian lives, and second, bodily, after our physical resurrection from the dead. How much power is that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prayed that we might understand how much power we can experience in this life. He said in Ephesians 1, 16 through 20, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul wants believers to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is ours if we are with Christ. So back in Romans chapter 6, Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is speaking about the direction of our lives. Having been set free from the dominion of sin and death by dying for us, so we are set free from the dominion of sin and death by dying with Christ. And as there's a turning away from sin and death, there's a turning to righteousness and life. We're set free from something so that we can pursue something else. Christ died to sin so that he can live to God. And he did that so that we could live to God. Christ always lived for God, but he died for our sins so that we may now live for God because Christ died for our sins. 
So, Paul goes on to say in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what's the implication here? We know that we're dead to sin and alive to God, so we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We need to just think in terms of what is real. And by revelation, Paul is teaching us here this spiritual death and resurrection is the way we ought to live our lives. I'm dead to sin. You're dead to sin. What kind of relationship can you have with someone who's dead? None. They're gone. So you're gone. Sin, when it comes knocking at your door, doesn't get an answer. Instead, the risen you, the spiritually alive you, has gone to be with God. Now we still live in our body of flesh, but spiritually, we're led by God. We're living to God in Christ Jesus. And there's a spiritual reality where we are even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what he says in Ephesians, but I don't understand it. I don't see that with my physical eyes. But spiritually, there's a connection between me and God, and that's in Christ. I am in Christ. Believers who trust in Christ are placed in Christ. And so we can live a new life, not to sin, but to live for God, that everything we do would be as unto the Lord, as a service for Him. Because the old self is done living, and the new self is ready to live for God. In the next verse, Romans 6.12, Paul applies this to our practical lives. What can we do if we have been risen with Christ and we consider ourselves alive to God? What should we do? Verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So there's this thing called sin. It used to reign over our mortal bodies. We were subject to the power of sin. But we don't have to let it reign over us anymore. We should rather rebel against sin, to not let it reign over our bodies. Instead, Christ should reign over our bodies. If we let sin reign over our bodies, then we let it make us obey its passions. So being set free from sin spiritually, the next step is to be set free from sin bodily, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Kick it out. The old master has no place there. We're not going to let him make us obey sinful passions. It's a battle that goes on in your mind, considering yourselves alive to God and not letting sin make us obey its passions. Oh, but sin is still there, barking out its orders. But we're set free. We're under new management. We have a choice now. To whom are we going to live? To whom are we presenting our body parts, our members, he calls it in verse 13. So here's the choice. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we have one body with many parts, and we can offer our body parts to only serve one master. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. You'll either be devoted to one and despise the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. And so we have two masters in front of us. Who are you going to present your body in front of to serve? Who are you going to bow down to and say, I will serve you? Is it to sin or to God? Paul says, don't present your body members to sin because sin will use you as an instrument for unrighteousness. Rather, present yourselves to God. God wants to use you as an instrument for righteousness. We should present ourselves to God rather than to sin because we have been brought from death to life. We owe it to God. We will never be able to repay God. But because we are thankful for the resurrection life in Christ, the rest of our lives should be lived out for God.
So how do we do this practically? Well, you can lift up your hands and pray to God. God, here are my hands. Please use them as you see fit. Help me to do only righteous things with these hands. Use them. My eyes, my head, my feet, my body. I present it to you that you may use me. I want to be your instrument. I want to live righteously the way that you want me to live. So I give my life to you. Have you ever given your life to God? It's the same life that he's given you. Life from the dead in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus gave his life for you on the cross, shouldn't you give the rest of your life for him in this world? Do it today. Make that your prayer. Why? Romans 6.14 tells us, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We should offer our lives to God, not because it's a law you have to do it, but because we are under grace, we get to do it. Because sin doesn't have any power over us anymore. We have the power not to sin by presenting ourselves to God, saying, God, thank you for your grace. So why don't we pray? God, I thank you for your grace that you came down from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. You lived the perfect life and you died for our sins. You were buried and raised from the dead and ascended back up into heaven. So we believers in Christ, we pray to you. We thank you that we were crucified with him. We were buried with him and we were raised from the dead with him that we might live to you. So we present our bodies to you. Here are our members, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our mouths, our hands, all the way down to our feet. Every part of us belongs to you because of your grace. You've purchased us and we are yours. You've given us the gift of life. So we offer to live it for you. We offer to give it to you. We offer our bodies, our souls, and our minds entirely to you to be the master of our lives, that we may serve you. We're done with sin. We don't want sin to be our master anymore, so we will not offer our body parts to sin. We're yours. You are our Lord, and we are your people. So be glorified through our bodies and be glorified in the body of Christ, the church. As we continue to study your word, verse by verse, please keep leading us into all the truth. These are some deep truths that we're learning from Romans. Please enlighten our eyes that we may understand it and that we may apply it to our lives. We consider your word to be true because you are a God of truth and you never lie. So we trust you and we give our lives to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. and one day give us a heavenly glory that we can only imagine. Unfortunately, because of time, we'll have to stop here in Romans 5, and next time we'll continue our study from Romans 5. God bless you, and thank you for listening to the Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans. Mm-hmm.